0: Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions.
1: And I remember I made a promise to the gods that I would, if I could get through this, (laughs) and I've never really shared this with anyone publicly. Um, that I really, please help me get through this and my goal is to just be of service let me find a way that I can best help and yeah, I stuck with that (laughs) Uh, I got through it and I stuck with it, yeah and and a spiritual practice was born of that time also Uh, I made a promise around that so yeah, that was a pivotal another pivotal time in my life uh, where I reflected deeply on where I was and what I could do moving forward. You know, it's developmental too. I'm of an age where it's (laughs) be of service, share, give. It's very tiring thinking of yourself all the time. Can you tell me what
0: you call the kids who you've cared for over the years?
1: We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies.
0: I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson and I'm a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA.
2: Hi there, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Dr. Mimi Savage. Dr. Savage is a professor at CIIS in San Francisco, the California Institute of Integral Studies. She teaches privately, has a private practice working with youth using drama therapy as well as other expressive therapies, has worked in two acute psychiatric institutions, and also, thankfully, is my wife. And a heads up to everyone this is going to be the last episode of season two. We're going to take a short break, do some fundraising, and line up our next season of guests. If you'd like to make a donation to help support Bonus Babies, you can go to bonusbabies.org and make a donation there. Here's Dr. Mimi Savage.
0: Hi, I'm here with Dr. Miriam Savage. May I call you Dr. Mimi? Mimi? (laughs)
1: Yes, many people do.
0: Okay, Um, So so
1: can you tell me a little bit about who you are? How were you raised? What's what's your family of origin? Uh, Well, that's a mixture. I am a mixture. Um, Who am I? I'll start with maybe that title that you just uh, gave me. I am a professor. Uh, I work at a school called California Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, My PhD is in expressive therapies, which is unusual um i am a registered drama therapist my background comes from entertainment actually i i was trained well there's an academic background i went to princeton and then i went to acting school the neighborhood playhouse in new york oh wonderful yeah i didn't know yeah
0: that's that's a great school and so you went from from princeton to manhattan to be an actor that's right wow okay
1: yeah, yeah. And, um, and did a lot of all of that and acted and was on television and all of that good stuff. And uh, then uh, there was, uh, long story short, an, <laughs> an uprising, right? The L.A. riots. And at that time, I was getting involved with arts education with children, theater, and um, just found my way in that world. Right. That changed your life trajectory, essentially, right? Yeah, it did. Um, I thought, well walk the walk, don't just talk it. So I got more and more involved with organizations like Virginia Avenue Project, other things like that, just more and more involvement. But I was still acting. And then eventually I had my own children and uh, started getting really interested in drama therapy. I found out what that was. I had never heard of it before.
0: I had never heard of it until I heard that you were doing it. So <laughs> right. I mean I, I I'm sure I felt that it, it existed because it it makes sense that it should, but I've never known anyone who who actually practiced it or, or who trained in it. so right, yeah. can you tell me a little bit about how it works, what it, What is drama therapy?
1: Yeah, it's uh there are a few modalities. Uh we're more familiar with art therapy or music therapists, you know, I think that comes more easily to mind, but there's dance movement therapists, poetry therapists, and a drama therapist intentionally uses theater arts for therapeutic healing or in education, for instance, but it uh you know, you're trained in in obviously in therapy and psychology, some anthropology, but it's using all of the the gifts of theater arts, um improvisation, role playing, all of those good things, including even original playmaking, therapeutic playmaking, all of those things, depending on the population and the need. But it's an intentional use of the art. So it's a beautiful fit of social sciences and the arts. Let's go back a little bit, because
0: I know you have a really interesting family background. You said it's very mixed. Your
1: parents are interracial, right? Yes, they are. Right. So how, how were you raised? Well, I was raised in Europe. My mother's French. She's from Bordeaux. I was raised in France for as long as possible, going to French schools and American schools, sometimes in tandem, because my parents are in their late 80s now. My father went to Vietnam. So that's the generation Mm -hmm. until we had to leave. I think it was General de Gaulle that said all American troops had to leave France. So we left. And yeah, and I lived in Germany before then. So it's kind of a typical story for people my age who are army brats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother and father met in France on a park bench in Bordeaux. She had just <laughs> come out of the yeah, she had just come out of the convent literally. she really had she, so, it's one of those stories and he was wandering in the park with his bongos or whatever you know, uh, Mambo bongos under his arm and and that's it. He's a country boy from Tennessee. Uh, and she's a country girl from, you know, the outskirts of Bordeaux. And uh, that's it. The twain shall meet. But they have a lot in common. And that's basically, you know, here I am. Um, and, and then we came to America. But as soon as we did, we came to California. My father went to Vietnam. He was a career man. And then we lived in Kentucky for a little bit where my dad's family had moved. That was a uh, culture shock. Mm. it was during the civil rights movements and my grandfather is very was very much um i still think of him as always around me an advocate and and uh, civil rights mm. mover uh, and shaker especially for the elderly so he was very involved it's it's in our family so that's you know and then when he came back from vietnam we were stationed to go to the south the deep south and my father convinced the powers that be to have us come back to California where they ended up retiring. And that's, you know, that's where I ended up having my adolescence there in the Monterey Peninsula, actually. Right. So how
0: did you end up at Princeton?
1: My parents worked seven days a week (laughs) and sent me to a prep school. I was a day student uh, and I worked hard and got into Princeton and went 3,000 miles away from home. It's just the three of us. I'm an only child. Uh, So I did that. And then I stayed back east and, you know, went to the Neighborhood Playhouse, like I said, which is a conservatory, a two-year conservatory. Yes, it's a great school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you make the cut. And so I did and got jobs everywhere that I could. Yeah, I figured if I could make it there, just like the song, right? I <laughs> make make, it, make anywhere, it anywhere, right. <laughs> right. But I ended up back in L.A. actually after that. So that's how I ended up here right now, literally in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so it's the time of the L.A.
0: uprising, uh, Rodney King, and you decide you needed to walk the walk as opposed to talk the talk. So what did that mm-hmm. mean then?
1: Well, there's so much Uh, in the air. There was so much injustice, just even trying to get people to vote um, to understand what was going on with police brutality, which is pretty rampant. We have films and lots of literature around that era. Uh, We still have it. (laughs) So I wanted to be a part of that. I couldn't imagine being an actor. And mind you, at this point, I had not heard of drama therapy. And you really can't be a drama therapist without being an advocate or because you're working with marginalized populations most of the time. You know, you're in a clinical setting or you're working in a psych unit. These are not people who are uh, usually affluent and who have voices that can be um, represented. So here I was, this actress, and I thought, well, what can I do to make a difference? So knocking on doors or whatever. And also just coalescing with some some actors and uh, creating a documentary. I was part of that.
0: Okay, so you're at the Virginia Avenue Project, you're writing for kids, you're acting with kids, you're story making. Tell me about artists becoming teachers.
1: You mentioned that to me when we first spoke. It was an organic thing. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing that happened was I had a friend who was an actor who said, oh, I, I teach kids after school and I can't do it. I have an audition. Do you want to do it? And I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> <I'm not sure. laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. I love kids. I love playing with kids. And um, there was an immediate effect working with kids. I remember being in the, you know, the traditional cafeteria and one child was just all over the place. He was hyper and I just instinctively said, hey, it looks like you really want to act and be on this stage. And he just stopped and said, me? And I said, yeah, you. And so then I thought, well, OK, there's something about theater and kids and, and change in behavior. So I am definitely a behaviorist. I'm really intrigued. And that's what you see in psychiatric units. That's where I ended up working with children for a long time. And why they're there is because of their behavior right? It's Mm -hmm. outlandish behavior. It's improper behavior. It's violent behavior. And of course, it all comes from trauma, but they're judged on behavior. And what I knew then, way back when, when I took that little gig, is like theater has a great effect on maybe soothing behavior. It's about catharsis. There's a way, and I had to learn um, the tools of how to do this, but I knew that Mm there's something. Something happened, not just to an audience when they're in the theater, but to the players.
0: This is so interesting. I, I because I've never heard you speak about it, and or I haven't heard anybody speak about it ever. And it all just makes so much sense. Uh, I want to ask you. So you were going for your master's. You decided to do that, and then you and you ended up actually getting a PhD. Is it? Is this something you needed to create on your own? Did, did a program exist? Was it? Did you build one? What did you do?
1: Well, there are only a couple of places you can get a PhD in the creative arts therapies. And one is called Lesley University. They were the they were originators of a PhD, um, actually a master's program in the creative arts therapies, whether you were an art therapist or a, a dance movement therapist or a music therapist or a drama therapist. And what they now have is called expressive arts therapists. That's the department I work in at the university where I work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a multimodal. It's a combination. We have all kinds of artists there who are social scientists. They're becoming therapists, right? They're becoming counselors. So yeah, there are only a couple of places. So you only have a couple of choices. Uh, You can get a a master's in, in those separate things. But to get a PhD, you kind of either have to create your own or you go to this one school. I think Drexel University is another place. And for me, it was practical. I had kids. They have a low residency program where I spent my summers there. And then I had an online back and forth thing with a cohort. Yeah, you have to be really dedicated. It can be very lonely. It's already lonely to get a PhD, you know, doctoral work. <laughs> yes, yeah. The majority of people quit. Mm-hmm. And I created an intervention. What happened was while I was working, I noticed that I could only go so far in the psychiatric unit working with kids or adults. I worked with adults mostly at, at, in the beginning. And basically it was half and half. And I created a program in the hospital because there was nothing there, a drama therapy expressive arts program. And it went really well eventually. I mean, I I got in trouble a lot. (laughs) (laughs) How? What what, what happened? (laughs) Well, my mentality was like, there's a barn put on a show. And they were like, no, 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 no. We have rules here and we want you here, but we kind of. We need you to follow our rules and our ways. And I really just didn't understand the corporate system of the medical model. I didn't even know a hospital really is a corporate system. So <laughs> I, uh, I bumped heads. And then I got it. And I thought, well, this is about working with children. And let me see what I can do. So I found a room, a space. I created an entire program. I had interns. They loved it. And there was a lot of good that happened. So
0: actually, before this, you mentioned that you saw a lot of unethical things as well in hospitals, in a clinical setting, in a residential treatment center. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that?
1: Well, um, yeah, it it exists, is one thing I'll say. It exists in all systems, right? Um, The system that I'll, I'll address right now is the hospital system. That would be where I saw some overt things in inpatient psychiatric units. It's not unknown. It's like, you know, the cuckoo's nest, but <laughs> I, I guess a little better some of the things that occur that are good for folks. I'm not poo-pooing the psych unit. Interventions need to happen, but there are certain things that don't need to happen. You know, in an over-medicated child, actually, even medications that are being tried out on children that leave them with permanent damage, nervous system damage, when really it's all about trauma, so they're not getting, or at least at my time in my space, I'm not saying this is a blanket statement for all psychiatric units that address children's issues. And I was working with kids 5 to 12, so people would af- ask me, why Why would a 5-year-old be in a psych unit? I'm like, well, what's your worst nightmare? It has to do with adults.
0: Mm,
1: yeah, for sure. But they're judged, again, on behavior. Like maybe they're at school and, you know, they can't handle it. They're in foster care. They're in their third placement. They have nothing to attach to. They have poor attachment because maybe this has been their life since they were born. And so much is expected of them. So, yes, they'll pick up the books in the library or the computer and throw it on the ground. And then the pet team comes and picks them up and brings them to me and to our unit. And um, some of the threats and some of the behavior of what goes on in in hospital systems, it's just – It's unfortunate because there's money to be made. Big Pharma is connected to the hospital system. Mm -hmm. And there's a pipeline. There's foster care, Big Pharma, and then later, you know, the prison system. It's very real. And so, yeah, you hold that responsibility. Are you going to be a part of it? Um, There's an author, Parker Palmer, that talks about the Rosa Parks moment. You know, Mm -hmm. she's on the bus and she's got to decide what she's going to do today. And I had that moment at some point, where I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to be a part of some of these things that I see that are just not right, or am I going to do something else? And for me, that was the PhD, and it was research. So did you know a lot about
0: foster care before you started working with, with youth? Did you have any exposure to it, or was it in your world at all?
1: Not really. I mean, all I knew was my mother's story, which is a story uh, that's, it's comparable, but it's not foster care. She was a ward of the state in France in, you know, as a child. So we're talking about the 30s and 40s and the 50s, you know, and that's why she ended up in a convent and and stayed there till she was 21, uh, from 14 to 21 till they told her she had to leave. So I don't, I didn't know. But then I was there in the psych unit and I thought, Wait a minute. Why are all these children as I'm reading charts and uh working with them therapeutically? Why why are they, there are so many foster children here? I mean, are we saying that all foster children have bad parents? That's not true. That's not true at all. And so I started to really investigate and that's what my research is really uh centered on. It's really centered it was my pilot research was on boys. Who were adopted because I needed them to come back. <laughs> if I was going to work with kids that were, you know, not adopted, it would have been difficult to get data because there's no security about them coming back to uh, generate data. And the same thing, I ended up working with young women who were adopted in a narrative way, just a way of doing qualitative research. But what fed me was what I had learned in the psych unit about children and not really having a voice. Yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, there were so many.
0: Yeah, I didn't either um, until I, you know, I also uh, worked with the Virginia Avenue Project, and uh, at the time, the term was "at risk" kids, which I, I don't care for that term, and I try not to use it. But that's what was used then, and turned out a lot of those kids were probably foster youth, and I, I didn't know it because you don't know a lot about their backgrounds. Is just that it, this was an after-school program to keep them off the streets. I volunteer with an organization on Saturdays called Peace for Kids, and it's actually a community organization. And their motto Mm -hmm. is, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your community. So they serve, over the years, thousands of kids who come back every Saturday to engage in all kinds of wonderful programs that help them to grow up healthier and happier, even if their home lives are in shreds. And uh, I think it's a really terrific program. And it was started by a guy who said, not unlike you, said, I got to do something mm-hmm. because otherwise I'm just talking the talk and not walking the walk. So I just want to ask you about, you mentioned narrative research. So tell me about that. How does that, how does that fit in with the work that you're doing? What, what is that?
1: Well, it was a choice because I'm trained as a narrative therapist, so story. Everything is rooted in story, and and I'm trained in a certain way of using drama therapy with narrative, so story making on your feet. It seems it's a good fit. Um, It's also a great way to work kind of in these triage settings and with acute populations. I work with people who are neurodiverse, I work with the most acute populations, nothing like, uh, you know, you picture maybe on television someone's, yeah, not like sitting around and let's talk about my life. I I worked in in environments where people are just getting off the gurney and they are on heroin um, or children who are, you know, just really volatile as they come in or children who have, like I say, neurodiverse, but acute, you know, wheelchair bound and, Difficulty with communication. So my world and the way I work requires a a fast-paced way of working with drama therapy and narrow drama, which is the way I was trained. That's what it was called, a narrative drama therapy method meant that I could use all sorts of tools. I could bring props in. I could bring fabric in and ask what color is it that you're connecting to and then that might lead to some kind of role-playing or some identity with addiction or I could play addiction. I could be that enticing addiction in an in, in a chair and you could speak to me and tell me, you know, how you're going to get rid of me or keep me and the choices are there. I think the word right now that's coming up from your question is um, – witnessing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I feel like it's difficult to, to stride the planet without understanding that you're a witness to things. So I think that came from my grandfather. It came from my parents who were bold enough to get married in a time when it was illegal. It eventually became really clear to me while I was in the psych unit, uh, working with adults and children, that I'm a witness to them. So how can I be of service in that way? And drama therapy is about witnessing. I mean, whether it's one-on-one or in group settings, we do mostly group work. And witnessing each other, hearing each other's truths, it parallels what you're doing here with this podcast. Yeah, giving kids a voice.
0: I see so often with the kids whom I've met, they feel like nobody sees them they feel misunderstood. They don't have a voice. They don't, they don't have options. They don't have choices often. but It sounds like the work you do is a way to help the kid get to the other side of the trauma, at least in terms of processing and in terms of healing, right?
1: Yes. And then what you just said, because I don't think I quite answered about the uh, research, I spoke about narrative ways of working and the research I did was narrative inquiry. And so it means I'm in the story. I have to be, you know, I'm biased. Obviously, my mother was a ward of the state. She was homeless. (laughs) She was not heard. She waited for someone to remember that she was around and they didn't. And so this research that I did along with what I think is most important in being with these children, whether it's therapy or the research, because the research was intervention Is is about offering agency. That's what you're saying. It's being witnessed, but also giving people choices. Uh, You don't have a choice when you're in foster care and you're sort of bandied about. You're going to go here. You're going to go there. Wherever you're going to go, people tell you. And it's one of the questions when I had my defense for my my doctoral defense. You know, it's very formal. Like, you know, what yeah, brought you to pressure, this. Right? Right. right. <laughs> you see your whole life flashing ahead in front of you. Okay, can you describe
0: that for me? Because I I've I've heard it before, but I want I want the listeners to understand
1: how hard that is. Please. Oh my. Um, well, first, in the midst of even there's a lot of steps to doctoral work, right? <laughs> um, so just coming up with a topic is a thing, and then in my program what was really cool was that I got to try it out as a pilot like I got to try it out and see all the things that could go wrong which a lot of things did go wrong and learn from it and then my uh, my doctoral work was an intervention I created a, an intervention method that was uh, used for creating for generating data and I call it the personal public service announcement, the PPSA. So you know what a PSA is? Well, this was yes. about each each participant to give her anonymity, created a mask, a plaster mask. And then it was an animated, um, this is only one of the ways of getting data. With children, you have to find multiple ways of getting story and no one story represents everything. But here was one way, a fun way. Also, it. It gave them agency. You know, how do you want your mask to look? Uh, there was collaging on it. There were words. There were colors. There was movement. How do I move with this mask? And then there was this app that I used called Morpho, that I don't think it's around anymore. There's one called Crazy Talk, but basically it animated the the mask. It spoke. It spoke. Wow. Um. And and they created the the text. You know, the the PSA behind it, and it really was about this is who I am. This is my identity. This is how I represent myself. And when I was asked, how come you came up with this thing? I just remember, you know, I did commercials, but it was for other products. This was about my story. And it wasn't a snippet. It was only one way of getting data. But for that moment, for that 60 seconds that person spoke about herself. And so that was one of the ways that I did this research. I, you know, I had to come up with novel ways. It also created rapport right away.
0: Yeah, it also sounds so empowering for the kids.
1: Like they owned it, right? They did. And then it was, they were witnessed by social workers, their parents, there was a huge screen. We had a, you know, a, a kind of like a, a, a premiere of, of this. And what was amazing was hearing some of the adoptive the parents say, I didn't know that. Even in that snippet of time, I didn't know that she didn't really like her birth name. I didn't know that, you know, because there were things that were said in that very succinct time. And so it opened up conversation. And that's what's amiss when it comes to adoption a lot of times is the conversations that need to be had, whether you know your biological family or your adoptive family knows your biological, the conversations between those three parties, the, the child the adoptive parents and the biological parents often—it uh, just—it isn't there. So, do you
0: feel that your early life and and the role of your parents, who you didn't—you you mentioned to me when we spoke briefly that your your dad was a houseboy at thirteen as well, which could not have been easy, right? No, no. And then your mom. Really had a a very very rough childhood too. Do you think the combination of those, of 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 course, and I I mean I'm sure it did. But how has
1: that formed you? Ooh, well that's hitting me in a very heart (laughs) place right now. So if I'm going to listen to my body, which is how I'm trained to uh, to be and to work, um, it 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 becomes clearer as I age. Uh, that it has everything to do with how I stride the planet, the choices that I've made, either as an, you know, an actor who wanted to do a certain kind of work, and also the work that I do now, and what I teach to burgeoning therapists. Right, I teach about what it is that we're even discussing now. My experiences, not just out of a textbook, but how does that apply to what you're learning in a textbook? Because I want you to understand systems. I want you to understand how you can navigate those systems. But how my father had to function leaving home at 13 without shoes and to work with a family, a white family, trying to get an education. He wanted to be a teacher. Um, And my mother, who was discarded and, you know, uh, sexually assaulted. Uh, The Nazis were on her farm the farm that she worked in. If you've heard of the orphan train in America, this would, I guess, be the equivalent of when they would send children out to all of these farms and vineyards to do labor.
0: Right. Like slave labor, really, except they were using kids. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were they were starving. Also, mind you, this is the war. So there isn't any food. She talks about, you know, a pickle jar with pickles and getting sick, just eating tons of pickles because she found them somewhere, you know. But my father, you know, they hunted and and did okay. But when he left at 13, clearly that affected him. He never spoke about it, but he has, unfortunately, dementia now. And um, he just every day refers to his mom and dad who have long passed and how they're going to come and get him and pick him up and take him home. Mm. So that to me is definitely a sign symptomatic of trauma that was never addressed because he was not, he was an introvert versus my mother was an extrovert. She wrote about it, She's in my research. I mean, her story is laced in my research. It turns out that I didn't even really realize how much her story was the story that I was investigating with these other young women. Ah, wow. Hmm.
0: <laughs> Funny how that works like that, right?
1: Yeah. It's the best thing, though, because, yeah, you're deep in it. And also, I had to process while I was doing it. You know, I did it in. A pretty amazing amount of, four years is pretty quick. It's, you know, that's what people take, five, six, seven years. I was in a hurry. I had a family. So I, I went full throttle. But I had to really process a lot along the way while I was figuring out how to get the data and put it out there in a way that was palatable. Narrative is taking and deconstructing your data and then reconstructing it in a new way. It was very arts-based, the way that I worked. Of course, because I'm an artist. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, uh, make research the way an artist plays. <laughs> mm-hmm, of course, yeah. And the goal really is stories to repair. Mm-hmm.
0: It's moving through something towards something better. Or I don't, I, mean, I, don't, I don't mean better, but I mean something that's, that's processed, right?
1: Yeah, it's you know we have multiple ways of witnessing because we come from our own stories. We have different ways of, you know, we'll have a conversation with someone, right? And someone says, well, I saw it this way.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the
1: same thing happens even in the psychiatric units. Yeah, I'm like, this is what I saw. Okay, what did you see? Some people might not think that certain things that happen are harmful. Others might think that they're tremendously harmful. But, yeah, when it comes to narrative research, my aim is about, yeah, how do we invite different ways of understanding, different ways of, of grasping truths. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the research offered. I knew that when I decided to do the, the PhD and I, my partner agreed, because we. I knew intellectually it was going to be quite a journey. I didn't know as much of a journey as it was going to be, even to the last minute when you're waiting to be called, you know, doctor so-and-so, you could be denied Wow, uh, really? So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Your heart's in your throat when you're there, and everyone is, you know, asking you these tough questions about what it is that you you did. And
0: right, and that's when you had to defend your your right. Yeah, that's your, when you're your, defending. your dissertation. Yeah, so what? Yeah. yeah, so what does that mean again? Like, what's it like?
1: <laughs> what that means is that you're, you're in a room. For me, it was um, online and all of the professors and chairs and your external committee, your internal committee, your advisors are all there. They ask you questions about the research. They each come from their own expertise, so they might ask you questions in accordance to their expertise. You have to be prepared. Well, you're so prepared because at that point, you're so steeped in your research, in the work, in the knowledge you know, you're writing literature review, which is all the background, the history, the stuff that we know about the work that you're going to delve into, and then there's this novel thing that perhaps you created. I know that I did, and and what what does that look like? And so they're asking questions about that and the purpose of it. So yeah, you're on your uh, <laughs> you're on your best behavior, and you're you you have to expect the unexpected, and it's a test to how you'll represent being part of a. Of a, a small group of folks on the planet and also I, what's coming to mind right now for me is I bumped into a couple of people when I went to all the ceremony, the pomp and circumstances of being hooded and the robes and and, and all of the, the glorious fun stuff of finally arriving. And I encountered two strangers who said to me, knowing about all of this good stuff that was happening to me in these few days that when I was over in Cambridge – that's where Leslie is. They said, "Use your PhD. wisely." Hmm. And I thought, "What? what what, what, is,
0: what does that mean? Yeah, what does what it mean? Yeah,
1: I get it now. It's this. It's this encounter with you. It's um, disseminating the the information that I got and, and publishing it, which I have. I continue to do. It's talking about, well, is my truth, but what I think represents children's truths and adults' truths, about, you know, systems. It's about teaching. I'm now able to teach and do more and affect more people in that. It's about the work that I did on Skid Row for a few years uh, resulted in a film called Game Girls. Well, that film wasn't about me. For me, it was about creating community. Um, And I was doing that while I was doing my dissertation. Wow. But now, you know, there's a film to be made out of all of those all of that footage that will also teach. So that's what it means. Use your PhD wisely. It's not about the letters. You know, you don't need a PhD to do this by the way. But for me it was a turning point.
0: So, how do you see this work playing out for you in the years to come?
1: <laughs> well, I found a home. I am um, I just recently became a core faculty member and associate professor. I found a home with colleagues who have the same language that I do, the similar trainings Mm -hmm. and understanding. um, Very, uh, well, I would think it's a non-traditional environment in the sense that we're very open to everyone's story. You know, we're not locked down on a traditional way of teaching. We listen to our students. Students don't have to call us Dr. So-and-so. You know, you can call us by our first name. It's not just that about the formality, but it's the way that we teach that's very about restorative justice and critical race feminism. And so we're just, yeah, it's a good group. So that's how I see myself. I see myself being with these folks um, and also expanding my own practice because I'm also very intrigued about the whole body. And I have my own experiences of autoimmune disease. And I'm curious about that and about Populations and how we work with drama therapy or any of the creative arts therapies, the arts, and the body, and also trauma—trauma trauma from foster care, trauma from wherever the trauma comes from. When I was on Skid Row, everyone there had trauma, and I thought at first that I wasn't as connected to f- homeless folks, but it turns out I found out I had a lot in common with them. Wow, um, really, mm-hmm. I didn't even—again, I wasn't conscious. So I think part of this is also becoming conscious, becoming yeah, conscious and being authentic to oneself and how all of that is part of healing. Yeah, that's what I discovered on Skid Row, that I was very much akin to all the women that I was working with there. Um, My mother was homeless. I've inherited this intergenerational trauma on both sides, it it appears now, not just my mother's story.
0: I want to ask you about something else you said. You said that you're working on being unbiased in your bias, what what does that mean to you? I find that
1: fascinating. Well, if I put it all out there and I'm transparent about my identity and how I see things, where I come from, you know, we're discussing your question today. It was a couple of times you asked me, you know, about my roots. And I'm proud of my roots, but to be clear about how that affects the lens that I use in seeing others and how I can help others, how that either can hinder or assist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I might see... And, and then there's training too. There's being trained as a therapist, uh, you know, that we we have to be careful about... Uh, we have to have empathy, but we have to be careful about owning other people's stories. So that's what I mean about I have my biases and to check myself, to do my own work around that. I usually do it through, through some sort of art practice. And how is it that I... Can be of assistance to others. There was a point in my life, it was a difficult point in my life, where things just were all falling apart. And I remember I made a promise to the gods that I would, if I could get through this, (laughs) and I've never really shared this with anyone publicly, um, that I really, please help me get through this. And my goal is to just be of service. Let me find a way that I can best help. And yeah, I stuck with that. <laughs> wow. uh, I got through it and I stuck with it. Yeah, and, and a spiritual practice was born of that time also. Uh, I made a promise around that. So yeah, that was a pivotal, another pivotal time in my life uh, where I reflected deeply on where I was and what I could do moving forward. You know, it's developmental too. I'm of an age where it's <laughs> be of service, share, give. It's very tiring thinking of yourself all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: it's exhausting always thinking about yourself. It just goes, you go in circles,
1: right? Right. It's never enough. <laughs> so I'm relieved of that.
0: So I want to ask you one other thing. You've already kind of answered it, but maybe there's something else. What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you
1: told them? Well... Knowing who I am now, like the organizations that I've, you know, I've been on the board of the North American Drama Therapy Association for a service for a decade, you know, supporting, you know, volunteer way, but doing lots of work, conferences, people knowing who I am as a professor, speaking around what I do, people who know me just as their friend, (laughs) people even in my own family, I'm wondering... What I will say today is that there was a period of time in my youth because we all evolved, developed differently depending on our culture, our race. You know, what I was thinking about when I was five is certainly not what some of my colleagues who are white were thinking about when they were five, being biracial, encountering racism. I guess there was a period when I was a little girl when I had a lot of shame around who I was. And that had been the battle for me. it It has been I'm uh, not now. um I'm very clear on my identity and and the pride that I have around it and and how my parents gave me um a voice and a way of figuring it out. They're not who I am. You know, my mother's a white woman, my father's a black man. I am born of the two of them, a melange, you know, a mixture but I had to find my way. And it's not just about race. As I say this to your listeners, everyone needs to find their way. And, you know, it's foster care, it's psychiatric units, it's it's the world, you know, it's this, the women on Skid Row whom I've become very close to many of those women. It's all of us finding our way. So that was just an added component or just a different component. You know, there's a lot of shame in the world and people cancel people because they don't fit a certain mold. Or there's a lot of shame around being a foster child or about being adopted even. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I will confess to that. Hmm. That's my confessional today. That's something I'll share. Uh, and 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 I think a lot of people would say, "Her, no way. She's yeah, so confident." Yeah, I would confident. say, no, "No way, no way. No, no she's way. so confident. Yep. Look at her. She just she's got so her stuff clear, together, so, right?
0: so confident. You speak up for yourself. Right. You argue well. You right. you seem no uh, like no shame at all.
1: But right. That, but I yeah. I just remember rituals as a little girl just help me find my way. Uh, Of course, I have one other question. Um,
0: Has it ever been too much or too hard for you to do? Do you think, wow, I just can't do this anymore? It's breaking my heart?
1: Working with children, yes. As a matter of fact, I left. Ah, I, hmm. I, I left and I thought, well, it was one client in particular. I was fortunate enough that his parents ended up coming to the hospital and I was able to give them information. And I... I just couldn't get over his trauma. Uh, you know, he had been sexualized, just all of the, the worst of the worst of the worst. And he was all of seven years old. And I think I just finally reached a place where I just remember after his parents left, they came to my play space, the, the room that I used where I brought children from the unit into the play space, my beautiful play space with sand trays and, all sorts of goodies were in there, um, the therapy space. I just remember closing the door and, and walking to my desk and just putting my head down and just weeping. I had reached my limit. And part of that is because I didn't know how to quite take care of myself. I had vicarious trauma. Right. Um, and I'd, bur- I'd burnt out. And so I got the bright idea of working in another hospital <laughs> with geriatrics. And-, and, and that was
0: worse, right? Or, well, <laughs> it was, or it better. was,
1: you know, it didn't get any better. Get and the better. hospital was mm. badly run and I just had to get out of there. And the effects it had on even my own children, not the work that I was doing because they would never know. They were never privy to that. That wouldn't be ethical or safe or sound or healthy. But when I came home, I had to, you know, I, I, had, I was a mom. And uh, balancing that is, is difficult. And the same happened even when I was writing about this, when I was going deep into the literature, the realities of that world as a researcher. There was a time in the midst where I just said, I quit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I gave myself permission to quit. And then I didn't. And I kept going. So that's what, Yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> is there anything else that that you'd like to
0: say for our listeners to hear um, about what you do, or what you think, or how you feel?
1: There is one thing, and I say this every time I do a professional development workshop. Like I work for an organization called UCLA Arts and Healing, and other conferences that I do, anything with professional development, I always thank everyone. Whether you're a teacher, a social worker, you know, a therapist, a witness someone who witnesses in some way, the organization that you were involved with, La Casa, any any way that you are being a witness, you are holding a metaphorical or a literal hand out to uh, a a child in need, an adult, a foster child, an adult of foster system, whatever it is that you do, I just want to thank you because we need you. We need you to be able to navigate tough times and systems You're so important and needed, and you know it, which is why you're where you are. But don't forget it, you know, when it seems as if you're doing very little and little is changing. I was told by a principal of a school where I was working with very acute, developmentally delayed children, and I left also going to my car
2: (laughs) in tears. In tears again, yeah.
1: In tears again because I thought, of course, not in front of people. I'm like, I'm doing nothing here. and she saw me, you know, I wiped away the tears because I just want you to know out of the blue, you're doing a lot. Don't think you're not. And it meant everything to me and I never forgot it. And so I share it with you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mimi. That's, (laughs) I hope everybody's listening. We need you and you're doing a lot. That's great. Yeah. Okay.
1: And you too. Thank you for this, for this time and for allowing my voice to be heard. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Mimi Savage, for all of your service in the community. It's people like you that make the difference. And it's also you, the community of listeners, who listen to Bonus Babies, because you too are helping us make a difference. Your story is important, and everybody, all of us, has a story to tell. And that, for us, is where the value lies, is in the stories we all have to tell, and the importance of being witnessed. Again, this is our last episode of season two, If you'd like to support Bonus Babies, you can do so at bonusbabies.org and make a donation there. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next year. Be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in LA, casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Apostol. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.